0: You are listening to Your Practice Made Perfect, support, protection, and advice for practicing medical professionals, brought to you by SVMIC.
1: Hello and welcome to our podcast on integrated versus independent practice for physicians. Today, our guest is Dr. John Lytle. I'm Brian Fortenberry. Welcome, Dr. Lytle. Thank you. You are a board-certified
0: orthopedic physician, correct? Yes. Now, how many years have you been practicing altogether? I went into practice at the completion of my fellowship in 1988. I think it's about 29 to 30 years at this point. Okay. And of those years,
1: my understanding is you've done some practice in an independent private practice setting, but you have also been an employed physician as well. Could you tell us a little bit about the time frame that you've done those two things?
0: Sure. I began in private practice. uh, In fact, set up my own practice and began what was known as the South Arkansas Orthopedic Center. And in 2009, we converted to uh, a hospital employment model. We're a single hospital town, small practice, and it was going to fit us better and fit the needs of the hospital better at that time. When did you decide that you were going to become a physician. Take me through
1: that part of, was it a a decision you made in college or prior to that?
0: And how did you know? That's a real easy thing for me. My father's a physician. Okay. And there's nothing I've ever wanted to be but a physician. I knew very early. uh, Humorous story that when they started the second grade, the local newspaper came to my school to interview students. I happened to be the one. The picture of me on the front page of the paper says future physician. Lytle says it's all a review anyway, going into the second grade. So I, I've always wanted to be a doctor.
1: Was your dream early on of being a physician, did you see yourself in private practice or did you see yourself working for a
0: hospital itself? In private practice, the model of hospital employment or employed physicians at that point was extremely rare and virtually didn't exist back in the 60s and 70s and as we went through. I did what I knew. I'd watched my father. I knew how he worked. I knew how I wanted to work. And I'd basically spent my life preparing to go into practice and figuring out what had to be done. There's lots of things I didn't know that I learned, but it was a process that I knew that I was going to do from day one.
1: So since you were planning on starting out then in the uh, independent practice, You come out of school, you get ready to go. I'm assuming your father, having your father and being able to watch them did prepare you to some extent for what you were getting into, but I feel probably there was no way to be completely ready for what it meant to be an independent practicing physician. What
0: does that mean and what all does it require to start out like that? Brian, that's a great question because as a physician, you're basically a small businessman. You have to understand that. There are medical license, a community uh, franchise license, and a franchise tax you have to pay for as a physician. Uh, you have to employ and find out what licensed personnel have to be in your office and what they can and cannot do. For example, as an orthopedic surgeon, I needed an x-ray tech. Right. Well, I watched my father practice, and never realizing that Years ago, the people that made x-rays did not have a license. Uh, Some did, some didn't. Well, in an orthopedic surgery office, you can't have an x-ray technician that's not licensed. You have to have a licensed nurse because they cannot do all the things that nursing does for a physician in private practice without having a licensed nurse. Just all the aspects of a small business, Uh, having a telephone system, for example most people, most college students, medical students, residents, would not think about the complexity of that. Making sure that the payroll is done correctly, and you're paying payroll taxes, and you're paying, like I said, the franchise tax, uh, the incorporation tax of your business. There's lots of issues about being a small business owner that most medical students are not aware of. Very rarely do you hear a physician
1: in training say, I can't wait to go out and practice the business of medicine. I mean, most people seem to want to just help people take care of patients, but you really have to be prepared to be a businessman
0: or woman first to just even get off the grounds, what it sounds like. That's exactly correct. And it is a small business. At one point in time, when I had uh, three partners, uh, I had 29 employees. I forgot I had over a 3 million dollar payroll and it was truly a a small business an enterprise that's important to the local chamber of commerce. You know you're you're actually contributing to the well-being of the community. And that's an exception rather than a rule, but still lots and lots of small towns I guess I'm thinking more of a small town situation than a, going into a big city, such as Nashville or Little Rock. You know, I was trained in Little Rock, but most of the uh, small towns, the doctor is sort of the mainstay of Main Street, if you will. Certainly. Now,
1: at some point, you transitioned from that private practice to a more employed physician role. Kind of walk us through that, not only when you did it, but what that looked like for you. And I imagine for every physician, it's going to be a little bit different. So your story is going to probably be a little bit different from another person. That being said, though, there's going to be a common thread that goes through that.
0: What does it mean to become an employed physician? And what does that look like? Well, in my particular case, as a businessman that was responsible for the financial well-being of this enterprise, like I say, at that point, I had 19 employees. You know, I'm responsible for their paychecks and everything. So I had to make sure that the amount of revenue generated by this practice was going to pay the bills. As I began practice, that number was like 79 and 21. Hmm. As this evolved with the changing policies of the federal government, changing pay scales, it hadn't crossed 50-50 yet, but it was getting close. It was in the 60% and 40% range. Wow. And I could see the changing evolution of how I was being paid and what I got paid, then had to pay the the expenses and practice costs. And I could see that this was not going to sustain itself. In other words, I was going to go into the red very quickly. Sure. As a single private practicing physician, you can't sustain that. You're losing money. Right. Well, that was not because we were not working in fact, we measured the work we did with relative value work units, RVWs. Okay. We were actually performing more work at that point in time than we had 10 years previously. But the reimbursement, the amount of money that the federal government and therefore private insurance payers was completely different. They just were not paying that. And so the practice was almost at a 50-50 even position The reason for that was the demographics of my population base. Extremely poor county, and I had 23% of my practice was either no pay or Medicaid. Okay. In Tennessee, that would count as 10 care. Sure. So how did those numbers get there, and how did
1: that affect your decision to go into that employed physician
0: situation? In my specific case, we had always had our clinic model. It varied between two physicians up to, for a very brief period of time, five physicians, but most of the time, three physicians. And when we made this transition, there were three physicians. We had always been rather transparent of what everyone was paid because you only got paid of what the work you did. If I saw a patient, then I got the revenue and payment from that patient. But we had a blended model of paying the expenses. We had some fixed expenses that we literally divided by three or how many ever physicians were there. And then we had some variable expenses like uh, employee costs and the telephone system was another one. If they calculated it at the end of the month that I did 42% of the work, not revenue, but the work actually done, then I paid 42% of the variable cost of the clinic, if okay. you will. And that's the way we figured it out. And we did that, the three of us together with our business manager that helped us manage this. So what it was for every dollar of revenue that came in, 79% was profit. 21% were the expenses to run the business, and that changed every month. But it was a pretty good number back in 1988, and it lasted that way all the way through ninety-eight into 2000. And then you could start seeing it change dramatically, primarily not because we were doing less work, because we were actually doing more work. We could measure that by the RVWs, but the reimbursement per RVW was significantly less. Again, that's policy directed by the federal government or the various insurance companies, if you will. Your patient mix, if you were doing pure private insurance versus Medicaid or Medicare, or as I mentioned earlier, no pay or however you want it to turn that. Almost uh, like
1: indigent care. Indigent type.
0: care, gotcha. uh, except there's no tax advantage or nothing doing that. It's just your time. And that's part of being a physician. Sure. I'm not bemoaning that as being a bad thing, but it's what drove you to have to have money to go home to pay the, your bills at home. So the hospital mm-hmm. recognized this. And when those numbers, the trend lines started to come together, in other words, from 79% Uh, profit down to a 54% profit. Over that 20 years, we could see that that was starting to change. So several things happened all at once. One of my partners reached an age when he was going to go off the call schedule. Our lease of our office space, uh, we did not own the office space, we leased it. We were due for a renewal of that lease. All that came to do at at the same time, and that wasn't by accident. We kind of strategically planned all those things so that we knew changes were coming and changes could and should be made. We just didn't know it was going to be coming an employee. So when it came to that point, they saw nationally what was happening. That it was not unusual to employ physicians. It was a little unusual to employ specialists, general practitioners, family practitioners, primary care physician. It was very common. Mm-hmm and there had already been one generation of practice buyouts, if you will, and they knew the pitfalls of those. They were paid a lot of money for the practice, only to see then the practice not generate that type of revenue after the fact, and we all wanted to avoid that. We didn't want any sense of impropriety of being paid for not working or being paid inappropriately when the hospital was struggling just like we were in our community. It's a very poor community, if you will. So we developed a pay scale that was a fee-for-service pay scale. You only got paid if you worked. And uh, like I said, if you created the amount of work to meet the thresholds that MGMA had set out there as the standards, then you could sort of set your own time and, and scale and place of how you worked and how much time and vacation you took, if you will. And in orthopedics, and like every every specialty almost, the call schedule is real important. We were able to direct our own call schedule, if you will. But that's how we got to that point of what specifically drove us over the edge is the revenue and expenses almost were to the crossover point where the expenses were going to be more than the revenue. So
1: it really was much of a business decision for you as much
0: as anything then? It was 100% a business decision. You think about a friend who's a car dealer. If 23% of the people that came in to buy cars didn't pay their bill, he wouldn't stay in business. <laughs> Correct. Well, that was the same with a physician, and so I had a very high percentage. Uh, actually, it was twelve percent that never paid me at all. Wow! And so then I had the rest up to twenty three percent of that of my whole practice was that way, and that's a factor of where I lived and where I practiced. I chose to be there, sure. and that's okay. But the hospital was a great corporate partner. They said, "No wait, Let's let's look at this. We want you to continue to be here." you chose us to come here you've provided service well from 1988 until 2008 so 20 years 20 years worth of they investment came and we started negotiating that then i would become a, a hospital employee now as we went into this there were lots of pitfalls i had people that had worked for me for that 20 years right the entire time they were really important to me They had their profit sharing plan, which was the equivalent of the 401k that, you know, before those things existed, we established this. That's where their retirement money was. And that was really important to them. And so I negotiated with the hospital for them to become hospital employees at the same time. But what I really was proud of is that I negotiated their time of service so that my 20 year employees were also hospital 20 year employees. Oh, wow. Every one of my 19 employees at that point were fully vested in their retirement plans, so immediately on day one of employment with the hospital, they were fully vested in the hospital's plan. And they went through all the lawyer work and legalese to get it worked out, which that was really important to me. Those people have been loyal to me. They were as big and as important part of this practice as I was, because I couldn't do my job without them. We all recognize that. And so they kept working, kept going. Those employees became hospital employees. Being in a underserved area from physicians in general and orthopedic surgery, for sure, the hospital let me basically write my contract. That's not the standard. In fact, in today's world, the employers are multi-site and multi- area in other words, I'm in my little isolated area to do this again, it will probably still be with the hospital, but the terms and things have changed. but what it allowed me to do was take my two partners at the time and integrate them into this practice and we worked not for a salary we worked just basically as we always had a fee for service type arrangement where I worked. We turned in our RVUWs, the work component of this, and we had a conversion factor that would pay us on a sliding scale of what that was. If we reached a certain threshold, then that put us in one level, the second threshold and then the top threshold, and that was on a 12-month basis, and it would create our pay rate, if you will. So it was a sliding scale. But it also gave us several things that if we reached this minimum amount of work, then that gave us autonomy in our scheduling our vacation time, anything else that we did. So we were hitting national standards published by the MGMA, and that's kind of where this came from is the MGA database and and what they did. And I would make sure that anybody considering this is familiar with that type of data and that type of work. It sounds like
1: you were in a situation to where you were almost able to blend both uh, the benefits of being a private practice entity, but then being physician employed by the
0: hospital to where you could kind of have the best of both worlds there. Is that fair to say? That's exactly right, Brian, because we got to keep our same employees. Those ladies continued to work with us, the same nurses, the same people in the operating room. Nothing really changed except no longer did I actually own my accounts receivable, nor was I responsible for the billing and collecting side of the office, nor was I responsible for paying the bills. I didn't have to pay the electric company. I didn't have to pay the phone company or the water company. They bought the hard assets of the practice. There's no intrinsic value of what used to be the Blue sky of a medical practice, mm-hmm. and I think in today's world, the value of a medical practice has changed so dramatically that there is no value except for the hard assets, sure, and we learned that that was that was hard
1: I can imagine that is a hard lesson to learn. Do you think that it is possible in the climate we live in for certain business models of physician practices? to still be okay and survive as a private entity
0: practice? I do. The first one that comes to mind is a brand-new physician right out of training, came to my hometown and set up her dermatology practice, and she's doing very well. She talked to all of us, lots of the old, experienced people that have been there. Not certainly that I met that category, but— You're young, very young. She did come and ask uh, some advice and and look at this. And she set up a practice. She started hiring all her employees, knowing that she had to meet that payroll. She paid all the office expenses and understood the requirements of having to pay rent every month and having to pay all these other expenses. Like I said, the franchise tax for the practice and knowing all the licensing issues You have to have Medicare numbers, Medicaid numbers. You have to do all this credentialing. It's hours and hours of paperwork just to do the credentialing to get to be on the networks to get paid. And so she went through all those steps and is doing quite well, and I'm very proud of her. On the other hand, that model may not work for a family practitioner today. You might not ramp up and be able to sustain it long enough to pay your bills and pay the rent. Sure. And that's what's driving most new practices into an employment model right out of training now. I don't know the current data, but it's above 50%.
1: So if I am a brand new physician, I'm just completing my residency, and I'm getting ready to go out and have my first job, and I am trying to decide, do I want to have an independent practice because of some of the things that we've talked about today are appealing. But then I also hear that there is certainly a draw to the employed physician part for some of the reasons that we have stated as well. What advice would you give a brand new physician coming right out of school as far as how do they need to assess this? What are some just bullet point key things that they need to look at and know in order to make a very informed decision?
0: Well, the millennial physicians that are coming out today look at things a lot differently than we did in 1992. Most have gone into medicine for the exact same reasons I did. It was something that proposed a significant challenge. It was something that they knew was exciting. It was dynamic. And it had great personal rewards of being able to do things for somebody. The financial rewards of physicians these days are not quite the same. It will still and always be a highly respected, highly sought after job. It is still a profession that is one of the greatest in the world. Being independent and controlling 100% of your life and your destiny is a little bit different now. And I think most people, again, I don't know the data, but I think it's way above 50, probably approaching 75%, go into an employed model. So with that in mind, you look at what's important to me. They already know lifestyle, family, time off, these things are the first questions asked, not how much will I be paid? And so we know that. We've watched this evolve. So I think that you have to go into it and ask those questions. Where will I work? Who will I work with? How will I be paid? And why? If this is a model where you go into a busy clinic that has a set number of patients that you have to see per hour or per day, We'll understand that ahead of time. Today's physician is coming out of training, computer literate. They've never seen anything but an electronic medical record system. And so they're going to figure out ways to make that work better than my generation did. And it's going to be there. Let's face it. That's not going to change. That's not going away. They're going to make it better because they have been raised with computers their entire lives, where my first computer was in 1988. And so it's going to be almost just like what they expect of their bank. It's going to be mobile. It's going to be immediate. <laughs> and so they're going to look at their lifestyle, their time off, who they're working with is going to be a real big, important factor. And I think that one of the things that we've seen in, in certain specialties, hospitals, for example, they're going to be more mobile than we were in the past. Based on what you're talking about, it sounds like
1: they're going to need to be very involved up front in the negotiation of a contract or something of that nature. Certainly, if they're going to be an employed physician,
0: they're going to have to be actively involved in that. There's no question about it. They have to at least understand terms of the contract. Now, if they join a large practice, they probably won't have much negotiation going in. That's one of the things you give up, I guess. It's already established. You know, the last 10 physicians that joined that practice have a contract, and so you're not going to go in and substantially change that contract by your negotiation, but you have to understand what that contract says and whether you're willing to accept working with and for hospital A versus hospital B, if you will, or, you know, exactly what your options are inside that One of the important things I know I've been talking about with medical students is having women write into their contracts some time off for family and having children. That needs to be specified up front so all of a sudden they don't come back and say, hey, you're not doing the terms of your contract. We can't keep this up. Well, everybody's anticipating that now. We're working that into the system. And so those kind of questions are being answered. But to say that you're going to alter the contract individually probably is not accurate except in real small and isolated cases, then you need to understand what that means in the terms of that contract. There's practice managers all around that are specializing in that. You're going to need to have some help professionally to go into this, to have it looked at and reviewed. If you take a look back, and things certainly over the years seem to at
1: least be changing in from all that you read and you hear Healthcare is a moving target these days of what it looks like going forward as far as policy and healthcare, political policy. Taking that into consideration, do you have a recommendation on people that are either in school now or new physicians that are looking to maybe uh, make a change in the type of model they're in now? How would you say is the best way to go
0: about that? And what are some pros and cons of doing that? The first thing is be active in the management of your own practice. Be responsible for your own business, if you will. This is a business. You have to get paid to go take a paycheck home and pay your bills. Something that my father had encouraged me to do early on is be active in the state and national practice groups, the AMA, the Arkansas Medical Society, the Tennessee Medical Society, those are things that affect policy. I also joined my uh, orthopedic academy, the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgery. With that, I worked my way through the system, and I ended up being the uh, the counselor, which was the sort of like the board of directors, if you will, from Arkansas. And from that, I continued to volunteer. I ended up being chairman of the communications committee for about three years of our academy. I spent nine years as a counselor. With what that did to me was— Keep me abreast of the changes. That was early in my career. Never did I dream that the changes of medicine would happen so fast. I knew they were coming. I didn't think it would happen in my career. Well, it caught up in 20 years of practice, but 15 years before I expected it to, maybe 10 years. The changes at this point are going to be dramatic and it's going to probably be fast. It's all dictated at a national level. The Affordable Care Act is an important piece of legislation that affected Mm -hmm. everybody. Sure. The physicians, obviously, from the business side, patients on another side in another way. I don't think that that's going to be significantly changed. It will be tweaked. There are things that need to be changed with that. But I think the next phase of this, and and it will eventually come, is that we're going to end up with a single-payer system. Mm Mm-hmm. I'm not say necessarily uh, in favor of that, but I'm not necessarily at this point opposed. I've learned to look at both sides of this before you speak up and render a hard opinion one way or another and take a side, if you will, because it's going to affect us all. But health policy on a national level triggers down from CMS, Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services, to the private insurance companies, the blues of, and Aetnas of the world. Right. But that's where the health policy is, and the health policy will dictate how the practice of medicine happens in the future. Do you believe that that model
1: or that policy that's coming down with maybe the inevitability of a single payer, does that benefit or hurt one of these two models we're talking about today, an independent practice versus being an employed physician?
0: Well, I don't think you can really say. If we truly end up with a single-payer system, which is very debatable—I mean, it's lots of issues, and we're a long way to go before we get to that, I admit—then this argument may be completely mute because we'll all be working for the federal government Mm -hmm. in one sense or another. And that probably is one of the negatives to that. It'll be a— big VA system or a big Medicare system, if you will, will all have it. There's models of that in Europe. France, for example, has a single-payer system, and different entities uh, would buy uh, super insurance on top of that, if you will. Mm-hmm. You know, There's going to be a blended model of that somehow that ends up, and when that happens, I don't think we can truly say at this point, but it will continue to evolve, and that's going to continue to impact the way physicians practice medicine. Well, let me say that better. It's not how they practice medicine. It's how they operate their business of medicine. Yes. The practice of medicine is not changing. It's going to be excellent. America has the best trained physicians of anybody, but the business of medicine continues to evolve. Dr. Lytle, I certainly appreciate your insight from a physician
1: who's actually been there and done this that hopefully will provide some really good information for those people trying to make those decisions. Thank you. You're welcome. Thanks for having me.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of Your Practice Made Perfect with your host, Brian Fortenberry. Listen to more episodes, subscribe to the podcast, and find show notes at svmic.com slash podcast. The contents of this podcast are intended for informational purposes only and do not constitute legal advice. Policyholders are urged to consult with their personal attorney for legal advice as specific legal requirements may vary from state to state and change over time.